Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special second anniversary show of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I began this podcast in March 2021 during the depths of the pandemic when musicians like me could not perform or even rehearse. Before then, I had never even listened to a podcast, but I needed to keep my creative juices flowing and I became convinced that a podcast offered a deeper level of engagement than social media. So I started the Follow Your Dream podcast with the goal of inspiring people to pursue and succeed at their dream. I wanted to have fun and entertaining interviews with famous guests, and I wanted to infuse my music into the show. So here we are two years later, and I'm so pleased at the success of the podcast. It's ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with nearly 800,000 downloads and with listeners in 200 countries. Can you believe it? As I like to say, every episode is like going on a world tour. I've met so many fascinating people, many of whom were idols of mine when I was growing up. And the icing on the cake is that I've been able to collaborate musically with a number of my guests. And the podcast has evolved into a totally unique distribution platform for me and my music and for my guests. I just released my latest album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade, via five separate episodes of the podcast. These episodes were downloaded by listeners in more than 130 countries. To put this into perspective, the album had over 50,000 downloads, while a recent number one album on Billboard had roughly the same number of sales. How about that? This anniversary episode is going to feature some wonderful clips from various interviews that I did over the last year. It will give you a good idea of the fun that I've had with my guests. So here goes. Jeremy Clyde is half of the iconic duo of Chad and Jeremy from the British invasion era of the 1960s. Jeremy told a hilarious story of how they crashed a wedding party at the entrance to the Wilshire Hotel in L.A. in order to escape a horde of screaming female fans. We arrived at the, the, the door of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Very, very smart place. You know, I mean, this is Beverly Hills. And I was actually looked at that particular door, but I don't know, a few weeks ago I was there. And just to remind myself that I got all the facts right, and it's true, there is a sort of put you can pull off, off the street, uh, you know, just in front of the door, which is like a big double door. And the guys were very frightened. But meanwhile, there are cars piling up on the pavement on either side of us with screaming women. And they go, run for it, run for it, we'll, we'll hold them back. So we rush out, except that coming towards us and filling the door, which I saw a few months ago just to make sure absolutely filling the door was a wedding party with a bride and the groom and the you know all the, the bridesmaids and the whole bit and we just went straight through them 
I mean, trashed them, straight, followed by very overexcited young women. <laughs> and I've often wanted to know what happened to that marriage. Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, another famous British invasion duo, told me about their first gig at the New York City World's Fair performing at the Unisphere. You know, the, the police had a habit throughout the early days of the British invasion of kind of go, don't worry, you know, we can control the situation, it's all fine. And they couldn't, you know, even in cases like the Beatles, they absolutely couldn't. We've all seen the big, when the girls at Shea Stadium or wherever it is, want to, you know, head for the stage, they just do, and nobody could stop them. And and we had a minor version of that. And the, the World's Fair was particular fun because round the Unisphere, there was a moat with water in it. And the, so the police said, oh, you know, they won't get you, don't worry, because there's the moat. So all the girls immediately jumped in the moat and swam across. And and so we were attacked by, by all these girls. It was like an early version of a wet T-shirt contest. It was fantastic. <laughs> Bob Gruen is a famous rock photographer who shot so many rock stars, including John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Here he tells the story about a famous photo he took of Tina Turner. In 1970, a friend said we should go see Ike and Tina Turner. And I went and she was absolutely amazing. And we were playing several shows around New York that week. So we went a couple of days later. Uh, to the, a place called the Honkamonka Room on Queens Boulevard. It's not there anymore, but you can't make up a name like that. Honkamonka you can't room. go to the Honkamonka Room, huh? <laughs> you can't go back, no. Uh, but I can see the play. There was a basement. There was a linoleum floor. I remember the stage was about a foot high. It was very funky. But I brought my camera, and at the end of the show, Tina Turner dances off stage with a strobe light flashing. And I opened the camera to one second, to see if I could capture a couple of the flashes. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know how to focus or what moment to take it. I took about four or five frames. Four of them are useless. And one of them is one of the best pictures I ever took. It captured five images of Tina jumping and, and throwing her arm up, up in the air. And it just captures all the excitement and energy that is Tina Turner. Susie Quattro is the queen of rock and roll. She even had success on TV playing the part of Leather Tuscadero on the sitcom Happy Days. In this clip, she tells me the advice that she got from her dad when she was about to embark upon a career in rock and roll. And I'm sure that every time you go out there, you're giving 110%. Am I right? You're absolutely right. I'm just going to tell you briefly something, my father, because you'll appreciate this. I was about two years in the band by then. I was about 16. So I've been in the band since 14. And even though all his kids, three of his daughters were in the band, he pulled me aside. Now, remember, my dad's a musician his whole life, okay? Right. Pulls me aside. He said, Susie, want to, have a, want to have a word with you? I said, yeah. He said, tell me if I'm wrong. But it seems to me like I'm talking like he used to talk. It seems to me like you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. I said, I am dead. He said, right then. I have two bits of advice for you. I said, okay, I'm 16. I said, first of all, this is your job. It's a profession. Yeah. Second of all, it doesn't matter if you are playing for 10 or 10,000 people. Every single one of them put their hand in their pocket, took out money and paid to see you and you owe them. Is that great advice? That stayed with me my whole 
it, it rang true in my heart, in my entertainer's heart, and I can never do enough to entertain. So what good advice to give somebody at that age, you know? Kenny Jones is one of the most famous drummers in rock history. He's played with the Small Faces, the Faces, and the Who, to name just a few. I asked him how all the British bands got along back in the day, and this is what he said. All the great British bands, you all kind of knew each other, didn't you? We did, yeah. I mean, the Who and the Small Faces used to tour together. The British press would say, when I say the press, I mean the music press would have, have it, would say that we hated each other's guts. We didn't. We loved each other to bits. We got along so well. They were from one side of London. We were from the other side of London. And uh, like the east end of London is where we're from. And the west side of London was where where the Who were from, really. And so and there was two, two forces of bands meeting in the middle in London. Bruce Belland was one of the four preps, America's first boy band. They had a big hit with the song 26 Miles in 1959. He told me a story about dating Nancy Sinatra. You said you used to date Nancy Sinatra. And I had this image in my mind of going up to her house to pick her up. And Frank Sinatra is there. <laughs> and you must have been scared to death, okay? Who would want to go up to Frank Sinatra and tell him you're taking out his daughter? Well, you know, when I when I say date her, it wasn't like I went to her house and she and I went out alone. We we knew each other at parties. There were 10 or 12 or 15 of us, guys and gals, mainly those from her club. I met her through another girl in her club that I was dating. And when I say we went out, we were out in, in mass. We didn't, you know, we weren't boy, boyfriend and girlfriend. We just hung in the same group and went out and had fun in, in Westwood, which was her hangout at the time. I feel much better now because otherwise I was worried about your life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to face Frank if I got her home <laughs> late. I, <laughs> exactly right. That's a dangerous liaison, as they say. <laughs> Tommy James is one of the most successful artists of the 1960s with a string of hits that began with Hanky Panky. He wound up signing with Roulette Records, which, unbeknownst to him at the time, was controlled by the mob. Here's his story. A week later, we're in New York City selling the master of Hanky Panky and uh, trying to get a, a, a national record deal. So uh, we got a yes from Columbia. We got a yes from RCA. We got a yes from Atlantic. You remember Kama Sutra Records? We got That's we so got good. a yes from them. And the last place that uh, we took the record to was Roulette Records, and which was a, an indie label, but they'd had a lot of hits. And so uh, the, the executives weren't there, so we just kind of dumped off the record. And I went to sleep that night thinking, wow, we're going to be probably with Columbia or Atlantic or one of the major corporate labels. Well, the next day, about 9.30, 10 o'clock, the phone started ringing. Uh, I'm staying at a hotel in Manhattan, and uh, it was all of the labels that had said yes the day before were calling one by one to say, listen, Tom, we got to pass. And I, I said, what do you mean you got to pass? I thought we had a deal. And Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic Records told me the truth, that 
Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, had called all the other record companies and scared them, basically, <laughs> basically backed them down. And uh, of course, I wasn't sure why this could happen. And then we found out what Roulette was, you know, uh, that, well, the bottom line was that we were going to be on Roulette Records. It was the first offer I couldn't refuse, right? So we gradually, though, learned who we were rubbing shoulders with. Uh, Morris Levy, the head of the label, and Roulette Records were not only a functioning uh, indie label, but they were also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. So that made life really interesting for us. Uh, while we're hanky pankin and moany moanyin, all uh, you know, there's this very dark and sinister story going on behind us that we really couldn't talk about. Richie Fury is the king of country rock, first with Buffalo Springfield and then with Poco. I had some fun with him discussing how they got the name Buffalo Springfield. One of the coolest things about the band. Okay, I always thought was your name. <laughs> okay, now I grew up in New York City, and when I was growing up, they were putting in sewer lines and things like that in the streets all the time. And sure enough, I go in there one day and I see that there's a big excavation machine and it's called Buffalo Springfield. And I said, <laughs> Now I got it. Now I know where they got that name from. <laughs> Whose idea was that? That was so brilliant. You know, we saw the we saw one of the the steamrollers working on Fountain Boulevard or Fountain Avenue in Los Angeles, and 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 we kind of like lifted a sign off of off of the tractor and came into a friend's house, put it up on the fireplace, and looked at it. And said, you know what? That looks like a good name for a band, and it was so cool. I got a letter from them years ago that said, you know, after the company had really gone to Harvester International and, and even disbanded a little bit, but they said, hey, so good to see the name out there, have fun with it, and just enjoy. And so it was so cool. Shane Mitchell is a member of Dervish, a very successful Irish band that's been together for 33 years. Here's what he had to say about that. First of all, you have to have a strong passion for what you're doing. And there was no no doubt about it. For me, the passion was always music. As I call it, it's my vocation now. And I am I feel so lucky, so privileged that I, I work with a great bunch of people who I'm very close to. We have a great, we've had a great life and it's continuing to grow all the time. It seems as, as the band get older, it seems to be getting more valuable or something. It's very strange. I have to say, it's quite remarkable that you've been together for 33 years. It's the same group, basically. Yes, is what you're it is. There's, there's one change. Tom is the new guy. He's only there 22 years. <laughs> oh, he's, the, he's the kid. He's the <laughs> new kid on the block. Peter Yarrow was part of the iconic trio Peter, Paul, and Mary, which had a string of hits in the 1960s. We discussed their participation in the famous 1963 March on Washington, which featured Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You know, what's your recollection? What's your feeling about that song so many years later now? Well, what comes to mind is when we sang it at the March on Washington in 1963. We sang that and Blowing in the Wind prior to Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. 
And during that I Have a Dream speech, Mary took my hand and she said, Peter, we're watching history being made. And when we sang that song, if I had a hammer, it's the hammer of justice and the bell of freedom. It had been a big hit and everybody knew it and they were singing with us and clapping and there were a quarter of a million people there. And when we sang Blowing in the Wind, when we came to the line, how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? I mean, it, there are no words to express how it felt. This song that Bob Dylan had written, and it reached its zenith on the charts the week before, at number two, to be able to say that and sing that to that audience and confirm the unanimity of our spirit. And they knew it because it was at the top of the charts. And they took hands, held hands, and they swayed and they sang along on the chorus. And that's what comes to mind when you talk about If I Had Hammer. Jim McCarty was the drummer for the Yardbirds, the British invasion group that had Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page in succession as guitarists. He told me this about Jeff Beck. Then after Clapton left, and I know he was into the whole blues thing and he went on to John Mayall's group, but then you get, you get Jeff Beck to join. Okay. I mean, it's like you hit the lottery <laughs> twice. I know. I know. <laughs> so tell us about the Beck era, because that was a big uh, era for you guys. Well, that was the best time for us. And um, yeah, we were, we were, yeah, we were lucky with Jeff, but we, we already had that you know, benchmark. So we had to have someone to live up to Eric, you know, as good as, good as Eric. And he certainly was. But he was totally different to Eric. He, he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't a smart guy like Eric. <laughs> he didn't follow fashion or anything like that. He had a dirty old, uh, you know, leather jacket on and long hair and all that. But he certainly could play. Tony Orlando is an incredible entertainer who had a string of hits in the 1960s. Here he talks about one of them, Candida. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was working for Clive Davis at the time. I was running the music division for him. For four years, I was uh, general manager, then vice president of CBS Music. Were you singing at the same time or were you just doing that job? No, I had four years with him. But right. what happened was the producer of Candida, who was, you remember the tokens, of course, right? Sure. Okay, so he was one of the tokens. His name was Hank Medris. He came to my office, a longtime friend, and said, Tony, I'm broke. I need to pay my bills. I want to play your song, a record that I produced. You think you can get me an advance of $3,000? So I said, play the song for me. So he plays the song for me. I says, Hank, I think it's a hit record. But I said, we're not going that way here at CBS. We're going more for the album-type artist, not the singles artist. Let me bring you over to Bell Records, which eventually became Arista. Let me bring you to them and see if they'll buy it. I did, brought it to them. It was a lead singer on there that they didn't feel was right. Not that he was bad, it just didn't feel was right. So they said, Tony, 
if you get the right lead singer, we'll give you the $3,000 for Hank. So I run back to Hank and I said, Hank, I got a deal for you, but you got to change the lead singer. So he looks at me and goes, you do it. I said, Hank, I can't do it. I worked for Clive Day. I can't do that. He said, Tony, I'm broke. Now you used to do, meaning me, do all the demos for Carol King when she started, right? I said, yeah. So you did all the drifter stuff, right? Like up on the roof. I said, yes. He goes, well, isn't this in that genre? I said, yes. He said, would you put your boy vocal on it for me, please? I said, Hank, I'll tell you what. As long as you don't name it Tony Orlando and you don't name it, have anything to do with me, I'll be glad to put my voice on it tonight. We got one hour. So I went in the studio. I said, we're successful in an hour. We got it. So here's how we cut Candida. He said, okay, what's the first line? And the producer would say, stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Okay, hold it, hold it. Stars won't come out. Okay, now play the track and I'll sing it to that. Da, 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 and here I come. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Stop tape. What's the next line? Because <laughs> they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. Because they couldn't match the glow. Okay, I got it. Now, the first voice that I put down, I would hear in my ear, like your earphones are on right now. Uh-huh. Then he would punch me in to sing the second line. We did that song one line at a time, and we made the hour. What a great story. Yeah, so why did he come up with the name Dawn? He was very clever, Hank Medris was. The head of promotion's daughter, Steve Wax's daughter's name was Dawn. So he figured if he would do that, Steve would promote the record even more, which he did, okay? Therefore, we got every station playing Candida in the country. What happens to Tony? What do I do? I hear on WABC, your friend and my cousin Brucey, number one, Candida by Dawn. And I'm not telling anybody, man. I don't want to lose my job, right? Gary Puckett was the leader of Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, another band with a string of hits in the 1960s. They wore Civil War uniforms, and he tells this story about those uniforms. While on this trip, I got this idea, mm, here's what we're going to look like. And I told the guys, we're going to dress in Union soldier outfits from the Civil War period of time, because I think it's a great look. We can be the same and different. We can have ranks. We can have different hats. We can you know, appear like we belong together, but not be identical. Wait a minute. I got to stop you for a second. I didn't notice on the uniforms, each of you had a different rank. Is that the deal? Yeah, that's what we were. We had privates and and uh, I think corporals and we, we had a private and a sergeant. I was supposed to be the general. I was going to say you must have been the general. Well, I was, but I wasn't. You see, the only bars that I could find that I was wearing were second lieutenant bars. <laughs> so, oh, close enough. <laughs> unless you were a military person, you wouldn't have known anyway. But anyway, yeah, that's what it was. So uh um, I told the fellows about it and they, they just thought it was funny and stupid. And um, they said, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, if you follow me, you are, you know, so <laughs> we ended up going to a place in Los Angeles where all the movie producers go. If you're going to, if you're going to make a movie about an Indian war, you get your Indian outfits there. If you're going to make a world war two, you get your world war two outfits there, et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, I went there and asked them about the Civil War outfits, and they said, sure, we got them. And, and they turned out to be so expensive that I asked if I could just rent one. So I rented one outfit, and then I took the guys. We lived in San Diego, and that's, uh, you know, just a short drive uh, south of San Diego. So I took them all to uh, Tijuana, Mexico. And I found a little tailor down there that uh, I just held the jacket up, and, and he just nodded his head. Yeah, okay, I, I can do that. You know, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. So your Civil War uniforms were made in Mexico. Is that what you're saying? That's correct, yes. <laughs> Steve Hackett is one of the greatest guitarists of the rock era. He was with Genesis during their most fruitful period in the 1970s. He talks about the band back then. You were with Genesis during that classic period. I mean, this was one of the greatest periods, maybe the greatest period in the rock era, that the early 70s till when you left in 77. What was it like? Talk about it now. You're looking back years and years later. It must have been unbelievable. Well, you know, you have to remember that Genesis is a band that was formed at school. I joined them three months after Phil Collins joined. I just thought, well, maybe I'll stay for a year or so and then and then I'll, you know, do something else because bands didn't last. Right. I didn't expect it to last as long as it did during my tenure. And um, it was thrilling to see the growth of the band from something where we were playing to three men and a dog, if we were lucky, clubs, colleges, rising up through theatres and eventually doing stuff on the international stage and eventually playing at Madison Square Garden. And, and uh, it was a great thrill for me. The Celtic Tenors are a hugely successful three-man Irish singing group. I asked them if they had any interesting onstage experiences. And here's what they said. What kind of funny experiences have you had up on the stage? You mentioned before, sometimes, you know, you, you might have the, the wrong words or something like that. But think back on your experiences. Give me something that nobody else knows. Harold had a great heckle in Vancouver. I was just going to say really? that, yeah. What happened there? Uh, I, was, I guess it was the last time that we did the Vancouver Symphony, which was about seven or eight years ago. Uh, and uh, we we used to do a version of um, I'm All Out of Love, the big love song, the uh -huh. Air Supply song. Yeah. Of course, there's a big pause in the middle of the song where it goes up to a high, huge high note, gets to the high note, total silence. And this little lady shouts up at me, you can put your shoes under my bed any night, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call that a heckle, though. I would call that an invitation. <laughs> an invitation. I, I declined. She was, in her, she was in her mid. She was in her mid eighties. Still an invitation. <laughs> Gilbert O'Sullivan had several massive hits in the nineteen sixties. One of them was Claire. Here's the backstory. The nice thing about Claire was Claire was one of the few songs written about a real subject. She was my manager's daughter. She was. I used to babysit for them, and Claire would be the one getting up in the middle of the night and stuff. And, you know, I used to go up to their house and she'd run up to me, call me Uncle Ray and stuff. So the affection was there. And the song was written as a thank you to Gordon Mills, my manager, and his wife, Joe, who used to cook meals for me. And, of course, the nice thing on the record is that Gordon plays the harmonica in the solo 
and it's Claire who you hear laughing at the end. So there was something really nice about that record and a huge success. Isn't that interesting? I'm very proud of it. Claire is very proud of it because I still keep in touch with her. She has two children of her own and it's a very important thing for her too. John Halliwell was the saxophonist for Supertramp, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. He tells the story of how and where he recorded his solo on the Logical song. This is interesting. I ended up having to record the saxophone solo in the toilet in, <laughs> in the studio because we were using the rooms for different things. We used one room for the drums and another right. one for Roger playing his piano and that. And there wasn't, there wasn't any more space for me. So I had to go into the toilet with a microphone and uh, and just sitting there waiting for the take, you know. I have to ask, was the lid up or down? The lid was down and I was sitting <laughs> on the lid, on the down lid. Yeah, okay. on the downside. Brian Hyland hit the big time with the song Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, which he recorded when he was an office boy working in New York City's Brill Building. Listen to this clip. Okay, so you're 16 years old. They come to you and they say, we've got this little novelty song called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. You can't forget right. that name, by the way. Right. And, uh, why did they come to you? Why not somebody else? I, I don't know. I, I never asked them that question. And I just went up, they played the song for me on the demo and they said, okay, the demo was a couple of girls singing it. And they said, oh, you're going to sing this part. Then you're going to do this part with the girls background singers. Then there's a spoken part. And then that's it. And we, they, they set up the session very quickly, did it probably about a week later at uh, Regent Sound Studios. And it was a deal where everybody was in the studio at the same time. I could look to my right and I could see the three girls singing the background singers. And we had really good musicians and they knocked it out in probably, they did, it was a three hour session. They knocked uh, that out and another couple of songs. And uh, it just, I think the writers also were there too, Paul Vance and Lee Pockers. You know, in a sense, it's kind of funny because they got this song. It's a novelty song. And they're saying to themselves, probably, okay, who do we get to sing this? And somebody says, wait a minute, the office boy, we'll get him to <laughs> sing this song. Okay. And you turned it into a gigantic hit. So there it is. Great clips from great artists that have been on the podcast over the last year. As always, I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet and to sign up to receive our weekly preview email. The links are in the show notes to this episode. I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Until then, keep on rocking. <laughs>